Let's pray. Father in heaven, may you be our fear. May you be our dread. Such a reverent fear that brings us to our knees, that brings our inside to tremble in such a way that it leads us to work out, not work for, but work out our salvation with fear and trembling of the holy and righteous and just and awesome God. Father, we pray that you be glorified here through the preaching of your word as we listen together, as we are edified together, as we are encouraged together. May you be our fear, O Lord of hosts. Amen. You can have a seat. If I were to tell you today that I had bad news and good news for you, which one would you want to hear first? I've usually found, as we have said here today, that it's better to get the bad news first, right? So that the good news can offset the bad, and getting the good news first just puts yourself in a bad, bad place. It's like me saying, hey, happy Mother's Day to everyone. It's a great day to celebrate our physical and spiritual mothers over lunch today. Bad news, today's passage contains six messages and I'm preaching. So, or I could say bad news, today's passage contains six messages and I'm preaching, but good news, I have a wife who could go into labor any second, so it's best I hurried up. So, that's... uh, That's what we're going to see here in this passage today. In Isaiah chapter 8, we have six messages here. The first three messages we'll see in the first half of the chapter. And they're messages of bad news. They're three messages of bad news. They're messages of judgment for Israel and Syria. They're bad news for Judah. And they're bad news as well for Assyria. And then in the final half of the chapter, we see three messages which we just read together here. While not explicitly good news, they're good nonetheless because they're messages of encouragement despite the bad news that Isaiah brings. They're messages of encouragement for the faithful few who are actually listening to Isaiah's words. The faithful few who are actually responding to God in faith. And you'll notice that the first half of the chapter here in chapter 8, the three messages are really a recap of everything we looked at last week in chapter 7. But let's start with the first message. Hey, we got six. First one here. Bad news to Israel and Syria. Bad news number one. Israel and Syria. Verse 1, then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said, 
to me. Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Here these verses show us the sign, if you look in chapter 7, the sign of Emmanuel, God with us, and how this is initially fulfilled, at least in part by Isaiah himself. We know that it's uh, fulfilled uh, in Jesus Christ later on, but here historically, initially, partially, however that makes sense to you, this is fulfilled by Isaiah when God tells Isaiah, get a large tablet, essentially a public sign that says, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz on it. And according to my Bible's footnote here, and you might have it on yours if you look down, that name means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens, which speaks about the way that Assyria was to take over the northern kingdoms of Israel and Syria. And then Isaiah's own wife becomes pregnant, as we see here, and Isaiah is told to give this child that exact name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. First of all, what a sweet name. (laughs) I was telling Emily, babe, could we name our child Maher Shalal Hashbaz? And she looks at me and says, maybe the next child. (laughs) Um, But here, the question is, why would God say name your kid this? Why was Isaiah's child given this name? Well, we see that in verse 4. Before the boy knows how to cry, my father, my mother, the wealth of Damascus, Syria, the spoil of Samaria, Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Isaiah's own son is basically playing the part described in chapter 7 by Emmanuel. Isaiah's own son is the boy whose conception and birth sets off this ticking clock. And before he could know the difference between right and wrong, he gets to a certain age. Assyria will swoop right in and the northern two kingdoms, which Judah and everyone else there was so afraid of, those kingdoms won't be a threat to them anymore. And we should note here that while Isaiah's son Uh, seems to fulfill the role of Emmanuel. He isn't actually given that name. Nor was Isaiah's wife a virgin at the time of the prophecy. And like we saw last week, this points to another fulfillment of this prophecy still in the future. Jesus Christ, a virgin-born son who truly is God with us. But nonetheless, Isaiah's son acts out this sign, which is bad news for Judah's two northern enemies, Israel and Syria. Yet on the heels of this, God also has bad news for Judah. So we saw the bad news number one, Israel and Syria. Here's bad news number two, and it's directed to Judah. Verse five, the Lord spoke to me again saying, because this people, people of Judah, has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it'll rise over all its channels and go over all 
its banks. Hear the phrase, the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. It's likely a reference to a gentle stream that helped keep Jerusalem supplied with water at that point. And it's perhaps actually related to the Pool of Siloam, if anyone recognizes that, from John 9, when Jesus heals a man born blind. But hear this phrase, waters that flow gently. It's used as an image of God's gentle protection for his people in Judah and Jerusalem. But notice how God's people aren't interested in that. Instead, they have, quote, rejoiced over Rezin, the son of Remalia, which probably speaks about them cheering on these guys while they watch these two kings get destroyed by Assyria. In other words, the people of Judah are celebrating as Assyria, this superpower, destroys their two enemies up north. Why? Because they put their trust in Assyria, not God. Remember last week when we talked about this? By putting their trust in Assyria, these people made a huge mistake. And that's what God describes here in verses 7 and onwards. He compares Assyria to the river, which uh, your footnote as well, uh, they they really help these footnotes, uh, says the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River ran through the land of Assyria and describes the Assyrians here as invading Israel like a river. Yet a river flooding over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then verse 8 tells us, This will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Hear that language, that picture of this neck. Here, picture someone almost drowning in a flood, right? Hope you saw that a little bit. When the water keeps rising and only their head stands above the water. And we see this, in fact, when Assyria invades Judah, that's exactly the picture that we see. They fill the whole land except for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judah had their heads above water. And they alone stood above the flood of the Assyrians. That's the picture we're seeing here. And what this means is that neither Judah nor Assyria will get what they want. Judah wants Assyria to be their savior, right? And that won't happen. On the other side, Assyria as a superpower wants to take over all of Judah. And that won't happen either. Because God says that he will allow Assyria's floodwaters to rise all the way to Judah's neck. But that's it. No further. Jerusalem will be spared. Which is a key idea in this passage as we'll flush out in a little bit here. But despite this, despite Judah being spared and their head above water, this is still bad news for Judah. They're still going to have water and flood all over them. And verses 9 to 10 tells us that it's not just Judah, but it's also bad news for Assyria. 
Okay, so we got bad news number one, Israel and Syria. Bad news number two for Judah. Here's bad news number three, Assyria. Verse nine, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it'll come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. Assyria's plans to destroy Jerusalem won't be fulfilled. Why? Because of Emmanuel. God is with us. So that's what we see here. In the first few verses of this chapter, we have three messages of bad news. Bad news is coming to the northern kingdoms, Israel and Syria, who tried to attack Jerusalem. Bad news number two is coming to Judah as well because they trusted in Assyria instead of Yahweh. Bad news number three, it's also coming to Assyria because God is not going to let them get what they want. Why? Because God is with us. God is with his people. God is still with his people. And I emphasize that word still because we already see in verse 8 where the land of Judah was called your land, O Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. So similarly, verse 10 says that the plans of the peoples, Assyria and all the other nations, they won't stand because Emmanuel. Your land, O Emmanuel, God is with us. Now let's pause for a little bit and ask a question. Does that seem strange? Does that seem strange to you? On those one hand, you've got people being judged. You've got people being punished by Yahweh because they've rejected him. Yet at the very same time, you've got some people being spared, a few being saved by God because he is with them. And that, that, that might be a little bit tricky to wrap your heads around, but until you remember the idea of this few people, aka the remnant that we've heard a couple of times in Isaiah already. And the idea here is that many of the people of Israel and Judah were faithless and would be destroyed by God's judgment, but there were a faithful few, a remnant, who will be spared and who will be saved by God because God would be with them. Isaiah 1 verse 9 says, If God had not left us a few survivors, quote, we should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 13 says, uh, it compares Judah to this tree, right? That'll be cut down and only the stump would remain. And from that stump would grow a branch through which the Messiah would come. Or as Isaiah describes him, the servant will come. And both of these passages in Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 6 tells us that many will be destroyed except a faithful few, a remnant that will be spared and saved by God. Down in Isaiah chapter 10, we'll read, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, 
For though Israel be like the sand of the sea in their multitudes, only a few, only a remnant shall return. And this is a really important idea because it goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul picks up on these words. If you'd like, you can flip there, but it explains why only a few of his Hebrew kinsmen had believed in this servant, this Messiah. And he explains this Romans 9, verses 6 to 8 specifically, that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham because they're his offspring, physically, that is. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. The promise are counted as offspring. And then Paul goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 10 in that chapter in Romans 9 to show that this isn't a new idea. Paul gets all of this from Isaiah is what he's saying. Though most of the people were faithless, God had always saved a faithful few. That's why we sing God is faithful. He is mighty to save. So here's the big idea as introduced by Isaiah and then developed on by Paul in the New Testament. Here it is. Just being born into a Jewish family wasn't enough. What was needed was personal trust in the Lord. And because the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem didn't do that or didn't have that, because they trusted in a superpower known as Assyria instead, most of them, not all of them, but most of them were going to experience God's judgment for their wickedness. Yet a faithful few will be spared. And with that faithful few, the remnant in mind. Let's make the transition here to the second half of this chapter as we read. Here we find three messages of encouragement to the faithful few. Isaiah's three messages to this remnant. And this is so important because most of Isaiah's words up until now have been addressing what? The people as a whole. Warning them of judgment, calling them to repent of their sin. But here, through the rest of chapter 8, Isaiah speaks to this faithful few, this remnant. And he speaks in such an encouraging way, as in a very personal way, of what God has said to Isaiah, well, to them through Isaiah. And the three messages, uh, just so we can break it down, it goes like this. The first one is that while everyone is fearing people, you fear the Lord. That's the first message. The second message of encouragement, he says, while everyone else is tripping and stumbling, you find safety in the Lord. And third, while everyone is searching for guidance elsewhere, you listen to God and his word. So let's look at the first one. While everyone else is fearing people, you fear the Lord. And we find this in verses 11 to 13. For 
The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Chapter 7 showed us how the people of Judah were fearing their northern enemies. As it says in Isaiah 7, verse 2, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were in fear of this conspiracy between Israel and Syria up north to knock Ahaz off the throne. And God tells Isaiah, and through Isaiah, the faithful few, the faithful remnant, God tells them, don't fear what people fear. Instead, fear Yahweh. The Lord of hosts, him you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Ahaz and the people of Judah were so fearful of these kings because they did not fear the king. Yahweh Almighty. But for Isaiah and the remnant, it needed to be the other way around. Point is clear. When we fear God, we need not fear anything else. Jesus explained this idea in Luke 12, verse 4 to 7, as we read this morning. I'll read it again for you. When Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Do you notice there how fearing God leads to not fearing anything or anyone else? When you know God's power, when we know what he's capable of, when his awesomeness, and I mean that in its literal meaning, awesomeness, when it makes us tremble, both inside and out, that's when we realize that nothing else can come close to God's power. We have no reason to fear anything or anyone else. Major implications for us here today. But just food for thought here on the side. Oftentimes when we talk about the fear of God, we tend to feel the need to explain it away As in, oh, it doesn't really mean fear. It just means this respectful fear, which is true. And clearly there's a wrong way to fear God. This fear that makes us want to run away from God because he's a scary dude. Not to be sacrilegious. But those who fear God in that way don't understand the fear of God as Isaiah describes here. Because what Isaiah and Jesus both describe is this fear that actually draws us to God as opposed to away from God. 
It draws us to God in such a way that it makes us never want to run away. As in, I just want to be here. A fear that intertwines with joy that captivates us. Yet it's that feeling, uh, if you were to stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, for example, and you look at this huge and dangerous, yet majestic and wonderful scene, and you can't help but be drawn to it. It's a little bit of a picture. But that's what Isaiah was talking about. When Isaiah and the remnant had a proper fear of God, they would find that they had nothing else to fear. And that's his first message. While everyone else fears people, fear God in such a way that you are drawn to him in awe and reverence. Fear God. Here's a second message of encouragement for Isaiah. Verses 14 to 15. While everyone else is tripping and stumbling, you find safety in the Lord. Verse 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Notice the first few words there. To those who fear the Lord, in his first message of encouragement, quote, he will become a sanctuary. God will be a safe and holy place for his people. Like the temple where they met with God in safety. That is who God is to those who fear him. But to everyone else, to those who don't fear God, he is like a big roadblock that they trip on and stumble on and injure themselves on. He, he becomes a source of judgment and disaster to those who reject him. As Isaiah has not failed to portray for us. This is the second message of encouragement for the faithful. While the faithless are tripping and stumbling, you who are faithful find safety in the Lord. So fear God and find safety in Him. The third one, last but not least, is that while everyone else is searching for guidance, you listen to God's word. This is the message that comes in verse 16 there. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. This word bind up here speaks about wrapping something up to keep it safe. And quite possibly, it speaks about actually the words of Isaiah that was written on the scroll. And similarly, the word sealing denotes the same thing in that something, that was something you did to a document. Right? to verify that it was the final and good copy. And these words speak about how Isaiah had written down God's words. So this written revelation was to be kept safe, to be bound up and sealed, to be kept safe by those who were listening to God. And not only kept safe, but to be treasured as well. 
In the midst of a wicked nation, the Lord's disciples were going to listen to and treasure God's revealed word, that is, the written word. And they were going to do that, even if it meant being patient, as you see in verse 16, right? Bind it up, seal it. Yet in verse 17, Isaiah writes, I will wait for the Lord. That's why we sang these songs this morning. Who is hiding his face. The Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, I will hope in him. Do any words come to mind in the New Testament? Right? We wait for the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. Even though he's hiding his face right now, I will hope in him. I will be one of the faithful few. God has made promises which would be and will be fulfilled, just not right away. The Lord's followers, starting with Isaiah, would need to be patient, waiting for and hoping in Yahweh. And as they waited, this faithful few, this faithful remnant, were themselves a part of God's message to his people Israel. In verse 18, Isaiah writes, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs, importance in Israel from who? The Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. Here the author of Hebrews quotes Isaiah's words in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13. And in doing so, the author of Hebrews there shows us through Isaiah's words that it should not be taken to just refer to Isaiah's physical children, but to the spiritual family of disciples, faithful disciples who had gathered around Isaiah, the faithful few. Right? This is why when we say Happy Mother's Day, we say Happy Mother's Day to the physical mothers and the spiritual mothers. Right? Isaiah and the remnant here, it suggests this Paul and Timothy-like relationship. Right? Which, by the way, shows us that discipleship and mentorship is so grounded in the Word from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And this is our commission. But nonetheless, these children, Isaiah's physical children, as well as his spiritual children, the remnant, the faithful few, they were all signs. They were warnings to the rest of the nation as they patiently waited for God's word to be fulfilled. His physical children were certainly signs, walking around like, Shear Jashub, a remnant shall return, Maher Shalal Hashbath, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. But beyond that, this faithful remnant themselves were an uncomfortable warning to the rest of the nation of Judah. As they refused to join in with the wickedness around them, as they refused to be afraid of what everyone else was afraid of, as they quietly waited for God's promises to be fulfilled, they were a silent reminder that this was the proper response to God's word. And that judgment was coming to all who didn't respond to God in this way. Yet meanwhile, while this faithful few 
this faithful remnant is trusting in God's word and waiting on him. What was the rest of the nation doing? Well, we see this in verse 19 when Isaiah says, and when they, the rest of uh, the nation, say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God, Isaiah says? Should they inquire on the dead on behalf of the living? This is what was going on in that time in Judah. Instead of inquiring of Yahweh, listening to his prophets and his word, people were turning to witches and necromancers, people who claimed to speak with the dead. Right? And I'm sure you're thinking about the irony and the effect of this because why would you not seek truth from the living God and you would rather seek messages from dead people? And you can hear that in Isaiah's words here when he says, should not a people inquire of God? The living God? Should, should they inquire on the dead? Really? On behalf of the living? And how does he con- uh, combat this? In verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. That's how Isaiah redirects them. To the teaching and to the testimony. While everyone else is ignoring God and trying to get messages from dead people, you, as a faithful few, pay attention to what God has already said what God has already revealed in his word. You pay attention to the words of the prophets, Isaiah says. You listen to God's word. That's his third message of encouragement. While everyone else is looking everywhere, you look to God. You listen to God. And this chapter ends with this stark warning for those who will not do this. Hey, look at verse 20. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against the king, against Yahweh, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Those who reject God's word find themselves in darkness and despair. And it's their own fault for not listening to God. So there's the warning for those who don't do this. Yet Isaiah's messages still speak out here. Number one, while everyone else is fearing people, Fear Yahweh, fear the Lord. Number two, while everyone else is tripping and stumbling on or over the Lord, you will find safety in him. And third, everyone else is searching for guidance, you search guidance from the Lord. You listen to God's word. So here's the three messages of encouragement from Isaiah to the faithful few that we've seen here. And this is Isaiah 8. And now we're going to ask two simple questions, as we did last week. First, how do these messages point to Jesus? 
And what do these messages have to say to us? Those are two questions. But the first question is, how do these messages point to Jesus? Because we know, right, that all scripture points to Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we know from the New Testament that Isaiah chapter 8 is no exception. Right? 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 14 and 17. You might see it there uh, up top, but... Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 8, and he applies the words directly to Jesus. He says this, Have no fear of them, verse 14, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. There Peter quotes Isaiah 8, 12 to 14, and he shows that Jesus Christ is the Lord of hosts, whom we must honor as holy. First Peter 2.8 quotes Isaiah 8.14 tells us that Jesus is the stone of offense and a rock of stumbling which unbelievers stumble over today. The same theme shows up in 1 Corinthians 1. The message that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, the sins of his people, was a major stumbling block, a stone for the people in his day that they tripped on it, made no sense to them. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus caused so many people to trip up and stumble then and now. And this passage points to Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, and everything this passage says about God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Holy One and the stumbling stone of offense. And this passage also points to Jesus because Jesus is the perfect prophet of God, right? Hebrews 1, we've quoted this, I feel like we've quoted this a lot. Long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by who? Prophets, like Isaiah. But in these last days, post-resurrection and the kingdom inaugurated in Jesus Christ, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. And everything this passage says about Isaiah is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus as well. We see that in Hebrews 2, 13, which quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, as we talked about earlier. It shows us that Christ is the true and better Isaiah, the one who has spoken God's word once and for all and who has gathered about him as community of faithful people, a faithful few, but those who listen and receive God's words with faith instead of running all over the place and seeking truth from everywhere else, including dead people. But because this passage points to Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus, This means that this passage, Isaiah 8, is for us. If you follow Jesus today, this is for you and I. This is not just a piece of history. It is, but it's more than that. Isaiah chapter 8 is the living and active word of God, the God-breathed words that are for us. So let's ask the second question here. How do these messages from Isaiah to the faithful remnant what do, they, what do these have to say to us today? Okay. So let's consider Isaiah's first message of encouragement to the remnant. 
While everyone else fears people, you fear the Lord. And we've seen this. If we look at 1 Peter 3, if we can flash that again, verses 14 and 17. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In this passage, Peter assumes that followers of Jesus will be mistreated. We will be slandered. It's almost saying count on that. Yet he says, don't be afraid of them. Instead, fear the Lord. Honor Christ as holy and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's a command, by the way. It's not optional. You don't have to become C.S. Lewis and defend uh, your faith through writing, but you have, we have been commanded that when we get asked about the hope that is in us, to be ready to make a defense in gentleness and respect. And that assumes that we are living and acting in such a way that it's obvious you do have a hope in you. So people will talk to you. People will be drawn yeah, we saw that in Isaiah 2. They'll be drawn to the hill. Nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain, the holy hill, which is the people of God. But isn't it true that what holds us back today from sharing our faith is what Isaiah talks about here? Fear. We tend to be afraid of other people Right? We tend to be afraid of what they think about us or how they will treat us. We're afraid of what could happen if we get branded a Christian in our non-Christian environments, at work or at school, or even at home. So, so we hide this hope and tend to keep our faith to ourselves wherever we go. And that's not just us today. It, it was happening back then. And that's why Peter points to Isaiah and says, this is the better way. Replace your fear of other people and fear Yahweh. Get to know God in his word. Look around you at the world that he has made. Look at his awesomeness in trembling in fear that this creator of the world would know you and love you and send his galaxy-creating son to suffer hell in your place on a bloody cross one afternoon outside of Jerusalem. Tremble at God's awesomeness and power, what he is capable of and what he has done. And you will find that the more you fear God. The more we honor him as holy, the less fear you'll have, the less fear you and I will have for people's thoughts or opinions about us wherever we go. Don't fear people, fear Yahweh. Fear the Lord. Second message from Isaiah is, while everyone else is tripping and stumbling, 
over the Lord, you find safety in the Lord. Again, we can see this in our world today as more and more people get more and more offended with this gospel, right? With Jesus and his followers. Paul implies that in Galatians 5.11, the gospel is offensive. You cannot remove the offense of the cross. We're hearing about this in Sunday school. I encourage uh, you all to, to participate in this. The, the, the gospel is such a challenging and such an uncomfortable message to those who reject it. It's hard to hear that we are totally depraved, that is, totally in sin, dead in our trespasses, and on our way to face God's judgment in hell. And our only hope is to repent and trust in the Savior who bore hell in our place. When I hang out with people in the community and in town and, and their nice, polite Canadianness, which I love, I can't help but think without Jesus, you are destined for those who are the opposite of you, who are rude and insolent and just against everybody. It's Jesus on the cross. He is the righteous one that saves us. And that's the truth. This offensive message, this offensive Jesus, that is safety and salvation for those who believe and for those who don't. He's a stumbling stone of offense. But here's the encouragement for us. The faithful few from Isaiah's second message is that don't ever water down the gospel. It's essentially what he says. That's a constant temptation we face, especially here in the West. We see people tripping over the gospel, stumbling over Jesus, and so we try to sand down the edges a little bit, right? Make Jesus and the gospel more easier to believe. I've found this in my personal experience as well, talking to my non-Christian friends. I found that I've been making Jesus more cute and cuddly and soft and easy to swallow. But we need to remember that if we take away the offense of the gospel, we take away the gospel itself. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, for the word of the cross is what? Folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And just a few verses down, verses 22 to 24, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Here's the Isaiah 8 reference there. And folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The parts of the gospel that offend people are the parts of the gospel that save people. So let's never try to water down the gospel or make it easier to believe. In the end, we'll wind up with something that isn't even the gospel anymore. And that false gospel can't save anybody. I'll add in an application here. Come to Sunday school. We're talking about this. Number three, last but not least, hang on with me. Isaiah's third message is that while everyone else is running around searching for guidance everywhere else, you seek the Lord. You listen to God's word. And I'm pretty sure that most of us here today don't really struggle with the temptation to look up a psychic and talk to a dead relative of ours, okay? But 
we are tempted to listen to all kinds of messages and sources of truth that are just as dead. Whether it's our own opinions or our own feelings or ideas we've grown up with in our different cultural backgrounds. Maybe it's an advice we got from friends or or some nice quotes that we read on the internet. It's easy to build up our own Bible, so to speak, with words to live by. Yet we've already been given the words of Yahweh to live by, and we need to train ourselves day in, day out, that when we hear good-sounding messages from out there in the world and know that that doesn't line up with God's word, we need to ask that. Is, is it true? Are these messages from out here that's not from God's word, is that true? And if so, does that line up with God's word and what he says? And the encouragement for us today is verse 20 of Isaiah 8. To the teaching and to the testimony. As Isaiah redirects his people, don't look at these people and what they say and what they think. Look to the teaching and to the testimony. And if it does sound good, filter it through God's word. Rejoice that God has given us his word and don't let any other message out there ever get in the way of hearing what's in here. Hearing and believing and relying and obeying God's perfect word. While everyone else fears people, fear the Lord. While everyone else is tripping and stumbling over the gospel in Jesus Christ, find safety in Jesus Christ. Don't water down the gospel. Whether you're at school, at work, or at home, wherever you go. While everyone else searches for guidance in their human wisdom, Listen to God's word. And Isaiah says, to the teaching and to the testimony. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken your word through the prophets of old and that you have, by your Holy Spirit, carried them in such a way that they wrote down your breathed out words and preserved it for us today through the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. And may we look to your word, to the teaching and the testimony that is written down for us here, that is speaking out to us today, even during this moment right now. And I pray that from that, we will learn less to fear people and learn more to fear you, Lord. And that as people trip and stumble over your words, that instead we find safety in you, in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. So let us do so as we go from here. Help us to fear you, O Lord, in your name, amen.